morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's up? How are you doing this morning? I'm great. There's something that's always bothered me about our culture and and our world, but specifically about people who are openly against Christian believers. It seems that any time Christian opponents want to push back on on our faith, want to push back on Scripture, they'll often call us close-minded. Have you heard that before? Stand some head nods. That you better believe it. <laughs> that that Christians are are closed-minded, or or you might have heard that Christians are ignorant, or Christians are intolerant. I just find that so odd. Because aren't Christians, aren't Christians the ones that are open-minded? Aren't we the ones that are willing to believe something that is extraordinary about this world? Accepting new ideas that are, that are greater than ourselves. And believing things, having a faith in things that we can't always see and we, we can't always fully understand. What if... Instead of us being the ones that are, that are closed-minded, it, it, it's the world. And I say this with all the love for the world, for the ones that are lost, that instead it's their unbelief, it's their blindness, their ignorance that forces them to be intolerant. And it's so sad to see people that have become such slaves to sin that they don't even realize that they're in chains anymore. If we aren't closed-minded, if Christians are not slaves anymore, then what are we to do when the world says otherwise? How do we prepare for that potential pushback? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 4, 7. Not a particularly cheery verse, probably not a go-to for you when you first wake up in the morning You look out the window at the beautiful Auburn sunrise, you take in that wonderful aroma of your first cup of coffee, and you think to yourself, wow, the end of all things is at hand. Praise God. It's probably not one of your your go-to verses, but maybe it should be. As Christians, we have no reason to be surprised. Not by anything that's going on in this world or by anything uncertain or unprecedented that's to come. Because if we're properly prepared, if we're armed with wisdom, if we're armed with self-control, so that, as this verse says, we could be a people who pray, then we have nothing to be surprised about. Over the next few weeks, we'll be thinking about exactly this verse right here. 1 Peter 4 gives Christians an insight into both what trouble and persecution— 
that Christians might experience, but also what blessings and promises are coming in the future and are already here today. This morning, we'll look at what Peter says about this world and how it is temporary and it's fleeting. Next week, we'll uh, uh, hear from Nick as we think about what we can expect from our Christian community. In week three, we'll, we'll get right to it, learning about how we need to prepare for persecution and we need to prepare for trials. And at the end of the month, we'll look on, on to what's to come. Nothing that we're in, nor nothing that's coming, whether it's close to today or it's seemingly far off, should be a surprise to any one of us. Because we're in the know, we're in the loop, we, we have an inside scoop, as Peter would say. I don't know if he'd say it like that on what's coming, on the state of this world, but most importantly, on the state of our hearts. This morning, we'll be looking at the beginning of 1 Peter 4, and here's what I I, I want you to consider while we read from God's Word this morning. What can we expect if we're Christians? Because we should not have a misunderstanding about what we should get if we're Christians, if we expect God to behave and act a certain way, then we might be surprised when God continues to be the exact same way he's always been. If we expect our faith to make our lives better, that's what we talked about in our class this morning in the young adults, if we expect for our faith to make our lives better, I think we're missing the point. And furthermore, if we expect prayer and our relationship with God to take away all of life's problems, then we are hoping that God does something that he never promised to do. That's fleshly thinking. And it's understandable because we're human. We're flesh, but we're called for something greater. We're not called for something that's marginally better. Here's what Peter says about this idea, the flesh versus the spirit in 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Peter introduces this idea that Christians, because of their faith in Jesus, because of your faith in Jesus, should cease living for human passions, for for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This is an idea you're probably familiar with. Even though we live in the flesh, we don't live for the flesh, right? When we see that word flesh, it's, it's probably pretty common to read something instead, like our sinful nature in place of the word flesh, which makes sense considering the list that Peter includes of sinful lifestyles at the, at the end of this uh, at the end of this reading. But I don't necessarily think that flesh just means sin. I think flesh refers to all of our human impulses, which can sometimes be animalistic, and frequently these human impulses and sin can overlap. If we think about it, someone who is controlled by something to use this list as an example, like their sexual desire, it makes perfect sense when they can't seem to control it. It's, it's just who they are. They, ha- they, 
they can't help but be who, who they are. They're, they're slaves to it. And the more that our world elevates self, elevates humanity, elevates these impulses, the more power these impulses are given to people. We see this more and more as our world continues to change. Those impulses become gods. Human desires become gods that people are claiming are worthy of worship. Sometimes flesh means that people are celebrating sinful lifestyles like are listed here in verse 3. But other times, serving the flesh can even mean elevating other human impulses that might seem like they're a good thing, that are seemingly good. Like elevating a job that you're passionate about over something like the spiritual health of yourself and your family. But it's worth it, right? That if I make more money, our family can be more secure and stable. Then I'll have plenty of time to worry about that other stuff. That's fleshly thinking. Or flesh can come in the form of even our, our own happiness, doing what makes us happy. If we're baptized believers, the time has passed for obeying our flesh, even if that means suffering in this life. It's easier said than done, and it's certainly easier when you're doing it as a Christian community, you're, you're doing it together, and we'll talk about that next week with Nick. But the world doesn't like it. In fact, the world despises it when people ignore their fleshly impulses. And this is what Peter says the world does in response to our Christian mindset in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God, the way God does. The world is surprised, Peter says, when Christians do not join in the same flood of, de of debauchery. I wonder if they're surprised by us. Are they surprised by what we're doing, or better yet, by what we're not doing? If they're, if they're not surprised, maybe we need to reevaluate what we're doing and what we're not doing. It's surprising to the world when Christians, especially in this time, who have the same fleshly desires and impulses as the rest of the world, are not indulging in every craving. They're not trying to manufacture happiness through excess of of these worldly experiences. Another thing that surprises the world is that Christians believe that the world is broken, that the world has a sin problem. The world is broken by us. We're a, a part of, of the problem, and that Jesus is the only solution. What the world says is the world pretends that the world is broken, but I am the solution. I'm going to fix the world's problems. You'll see groups blame things for other generations, and they'll say, here's how, here's how they did it wrong, and here's how we're going to make it right. I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot these days. You'll see groups blaming other groups and saying, here's what they're doing wrong, and here's why you need to be in our group, and here's how our group is, is going to make things right in all these different areas of life. 
The Bible tells us we're all to blame for the sin that's in this world. And Jesus is the only solution. In the early days and years of the church, the Christian movement, which at that time was known as the Way, stirred up quite a buzz in the community, so much so that Gentiles and non-Christians began to stereotype Jesus' followers based on rumors that they'd heard about this new movement. You might be familiar with some of these. They believe that the early church promoted incest. Did you know that? Because of, of the great love that they shared for their brothers and their sisters, even, even referring to their own spouses as brothers and sisters. Terrible people, those early, early Christians. And they believed that the early church were actually cannibals because they regularly gathered together to share in the body and the blood of Jesus. Further evidence that these terrible Christians were, were cannibals is that they weren't participating in, in abortion and in anicide like, like the Greeks and the Romans, and instead Christians were actually rescuing babies who were left to die to exposure in the elements. What were these Christians doing with all those babies? They were caring for the vulnerable. The most ironic one to me is that the world believed that the early church, these Christians, they actually believed that they were atheists. They thought that because these people weren't participating in the cultural pagan practices, they weren't gathering together at the regularly scheduled, scheduled times for idol worship, certainly they must be atheists. Well, you and I both know they weren't atheists. They believed in the one true God. Of course, the world would be surprised by these Christians, these early church Christians, for not participating in the cultural debauchery that was taking place. What weirdos! Have you heard about the people in the way and all the things that they're doing and how they're not coming together to the market to do the things that everybody else is doing? How close-minded! of those early Christians. I'm sure that was said. And early Christians were persecuted for what they were doing, but more importantly, for what they weren't doing. Peter's encouragement here in 1 Peter chapter 4 is, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be maligned, you're going to be slandered, you're going to be disrespected. So be prepared to give an account to God who will judge all humanity. I don't need to tell you that our faith today, what we believe, still sounds surprising to the world. We could talk for a while about how Christians are mischaracterized in the world that we live in, much in the way that the early church was. I don't know if they still think that we're cannibals. I don't want to talk about what they don't know about us. I don't want to talk about how the world is mischaracterizing us. I want to talk about what the world should know about us. Peter gives us a framework here in the reading that we just saw, a look behind the curtain, that we should have no excuse to not know what's coming. There should be no surprises about what's on the horizon for people who believe in God. If you're not a, an outtaker, and you're just going to write down one thing this morning, I just, I hope it's these two things right here. Number one, the flesh is going to suffer. 
It's not a scare tactic, it's, it's reality. And Peter reminds us, even the Son of God realized that he was going to suffer. And not only did he realize he was going to suffer, he will, willingly chose suffering. To suffer a life in this flesh like you and me. We have to decide that before suffering comes, we're going to trust in the Lord. We cannot wait until suffering is here to make that decision. We've got to be prepared. Number two, when our flesh doesn't engage, when our flesh, when our lives don't engage in the same things that the world's engaging in, we're probably going to suffer more. That's what Peter says. They can't believe it, that we don't enjoy the same things that, that they enjoy. Christians should have no surprises. We have to be prepared. The truth is that the world does misunderstand and Christian believers every day. They try to make sense of what we're doing by putting it in their worldview, by placing our behaviors in their value systems, and it will never make sense to them until they're willing to listen. But some of the things that the world misunderstands about Christians is unfortunately true about some Christians. Please don't let that be true of us. It's probably true of us. The, the things that the world is saying about the church, it's true of us when we love the world. It goes back to the scripture reading that was read for us earlier this morning in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Love for the world is the beginning of the end of love for God. The more that we rely and celebrate this world, the less we are anxiously awaiting and preparing for what is coming for us if, if, we're, if we're Christians. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us, and if we love the world, it's not surprising that people look at Christians who don't love the Lord and aren't exhibiting godly lifestyles. The world might pretend that believers are the ones that are closed-minded and ignorant that's okay. That's what Peter said was going to happen. How are we preparing for what's coming? How are we preparing for the suffering that's coming? How are we, we preparing for the glory that's coming? That's what we're going to keep thinking about over the next few weeks. Our witness, the life that we live, the Example that we are showing to other people about who God is must look like something they've never seen before. Not just a different version of a way to live, but the only way to live. I mentioned this earlier, but if we think that being a Christian is going to make our life better, that's still a fleshly way to view our Lord. That's a fleshly way to view this world. If we think that being a Christian is going to make us happy, that's fleshly thinking. We certainly will be happy, but not happy in 
the way that the world evaluates happiness if we think that being a Christian is going to elevate us over any type of suffering that exists in this world that exists in our fleshly body then we are gravely mistaken because there's still suffering and there's still pain and there's still death but if we're baptized believers you and I both know that the suffering that's taking place here in these mortal bodies is not the end. Sure, we'll still experience it. And sure, there will still be pain. But we know that this isn't it. I want to close with the verse I opened with at the beginning that comes next in, in the First Peter chapter 4 readings. It's not on the screen here, but it's short. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For Peter, prayer is not the antidote to suffering. Prayer is not a magical solvent that you can pull out to blot out your worries and make your problems better. Prayer is not the antidote for Peter. Prayer is what is at risk. The suffering and chaos that's taking place in this world is not because Christians are not praying enough, but it might be what's causing Christians to not pray enough. The more that we get caught up in the suffering of this life and the more that we get bogged down in what's taking place in our world, the less we might want to pray. The end of all things is at hand. No surprises, so be self-controlled and sober-minded so that no matter what life throws at you in your direction, you will still be able to pray. If you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you know what Jesus has done for you, and I hope you know that Jesus can still do something for you. God's eyes and ears are on the hearts of those who are baptized and saved from their sins, and you might not know it yet, but that is what you're missing in this life. If you are a Christian, I, I hope we're not confusing worldly happiness with godly joy, and I hope that we are prepared for the hurt that this life is going to bring. If your prayers aren't what they used to be, if your heart has become callous, and if your spirit has grown weak, I invite you to bring those things before God, not so that he can improve your situation, that he can improve your lot in life, but so that he could be known by you and that you could know him. Suffering is coming. I don't know how and I don't know when, but when it comes, we need to have already been praying that God will still be in control and we need to be people who will trust in him no matter what. If we're trusting in God only when we get, when we get things, that's fleshly thinking. That's a worldly mindset. The end of all things is at hand. I urge you, be self-controlled and be sober-minded so that you could continue to go to your Father in heaven in prayer. And so that no matter what suffering enters into your life, and no matter what suffering is on the horizon for the people that are in your family, and no matter what suffering is out there that we can't even imagine in this world, that we would still, as a group of believers, turn to our Father in heaven and ask him to make this world right.
If you have any need at all this morning, I hope that you make it known right now as we stand and we sing.